everyone. Welcome to the 16th buddy sode of Antibodies. Today we have a very special guest with us. But before I introduce him, I really want to get the hype up before. <laughs> have you ever wondered why although one-fifth American population carry MRSA or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus on their body, only a few get skin infections? Let me provide an analogy for one of the ways our body defends against MRSA. When your newly adopted puppy starts chewing on all the shoes and cables in the house, you distract the puppy by giving him a chew toy that it can bite on instead of your computer wires. Our cells employ a similar trick to fight against MRSA and possibly some other pathogens too. With today's article, we'll learn about this strategy that our cells use. So stay tuned for this episode to know the answers. Dr. Cadwell, how do you define MRSA in simplest terms? So it's a gram-positive bacteria. Um, I think uh, uh, you addressed this a little bit in your introduction. It is common, but maybe not common knowledge, right? Uh, it's actually yeah, everywhere. True. About a third of the population um, uh, are colonized uh, on the skin, um, likely uh, inside your nose by this bacterium. And uh, uh, maybe even more than that are transiently colonized by this bacterium. However, it could cause life-threatening diseases when it gets inside your body. So you mentioned uh, skin infection, that's one. Uh, it could also cause uh, sepsis, so bloodstream infection and also pneumonia, right, a lung infection, and those can be deadly. And one of the reasons why many people care about MRSA and Staphylococcus aureus is that, uh, as the name suggests, methicillin-resistant, uh, they're resistant against antibiotics that we take, right? So it's very difficult to treat um, even once you know that uh, you're infected with this thing and it's uh, causing you harm. I would like to remember it as it is a hospital staff which doesn't take drugs. <laughs> that is a great yeah, way to remember also, it. <laughs> <laughs> it is also sometimes called as a superbug because of the same reason. That's right. Oh. Just just for information, I am a I'm an immunologist, the kind that does not study infections, non-infectious <laughs> autoimmunity. This stuff is very interesting to me, but not my main domain. So I'm going to rely on Tanu for very technical details. <laughs> okay. So today's article of discussion is titled Decoy Exosomes Provide Protection Against Bacterial Toxins. It was published last year in Nature. And the first author is Dr. Matthew Keller. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, who was a graduate student in Dr. Ken Cadwell's lab during this work. And with me today is, as you know, your favorite host, Jatin, and Dr. Ken Cadwell himself. So Dr. Cadwell pursued his PhD from University of California at Berkeley and currently works at the Department of Microbiology at New York University. His lab at the Grossman School of Medicine explores the control of immune system during infectious and inflammatory diseases. I would now go to Dr. Cadwell or Ken, as we are referring to you today. And I would like to ask more about, can you give us a little more details about your lab and 
or the research you did in your PhD and postdoc. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to mention one thing early. So, so Matt Keller, the first author, fantastic graduate student.、Uh, Recently graduated, so he deserves the credit for the paper. And also, he is a joint graduate student between me and the other senior author on the paper, Victor Torres,、uh, who's also at NYU.、Uh, and so, he、uh, deserves a tremendous amount of credit. So,、uh, you said uh, uh, you're an immunologist, right?、Uh, that's also my background. And more specifically, my training was in viral immunology. And、uh, the other senior author, Victor,、uh, is actually the real expert on Staph aureus. So none of this would have been possible without his、uh, expertise and contribution.、Um, so, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about my lab and you know, how we ended up working on this uh, project. Uh, like a lot of science, it uh, uh, was a bit of、uh, serendipitous observations. and.、Uh, Uh, being surrounded by great people like Victor and,、uh, and Matt. right?、Uh, so, my lab tries to understand how the host、uh, has adapted to the diverse microbes that we encounter all throughout life. And uh, uh, part of that is how these microbes interact with our immune system,、uh, why our immune system can coexist. With、uh, these different infectious agents. They look very different from one another. And、uh, a lot of them we can't just get rid of, they're part of our bodies. So, in particular, we're talking about the microbiome, right? And we think that when this balance,、uh, inter- balanced interaction is disrupted, that causes or contributes to various types of diseases, including those autoimmune diseases you mentioned,、uh, inflammatory diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, and also susceptibility to opportunistic pathogens. Um, like C. diff and、um, uh, even Staph aureus.、Uh, so that's kind of what my lab works on. And one host pathway、uh, that we think is very important、uh, for maintaining this balanced relationship is a cell biological pathway called autophagy.、Um, and that comes into play in this paper. So my lab was already、uh, interested in this pathway to begin with. Uh, there's a particular gene that we really like called ATG16L1.、Uh, that was the gene、uh, that I was working on during my postdoctoral fellowship. And、uh, the reason why we started working on that gene in particular was uh, uh, at that time there were new studies、um, implicating this gene、uh, as a susceptibility factor for a type of inflammatory bowel disease. So, that provided a link between this gene and、uh, inflammation in the gut. And we became very curious how it was working、um, uh, in the gut in、uh, mucosal defense. And、uh, that's, that's how we got started. Great. That's great. Inter- yeah, very interesting, interesting. buildup、yeah. where we are right now. <laughs> But yeah. Uh, as it goes for all of our body soats, which are technically heavy normally. So, we're going to discuss some terminology before we get into the meat of the paper. Starting with exosomes. Exosomes are mammalian extracellular vesicles, typically from、uh, 40 to 120 nanometer diameter. They carry proteins, they metabolize nucleic acids similar to the cells from where they originated from. 
N are enclosed by lipid membrane. Uh, as somebody who does not work with exosomes, I often think of exosomes as miniature cells, like representatives of cells, but devoid of organelles. Am Which I thinking? Which are not in, alive. Yeah, but so devoid of organelles, right? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> is this a good, uh, I would say, a path for thinking about exosomes? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, uh, correct. Um, there's uh, a lot of different types of extracellular vesicles, right? And mm-hmm. even uh, uh, I, I can't think of any uh, organism that doesn't produce some kind of extracellular vesicle. So bacteria do too. Um, uh, but uh, the exosomes are referred to a particular kind. And mm-hmm. uh, you define that partially by size, which you mentioned, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're on the small end of them, uh, of the spectrum. And they're made from, uh, uh, they're, they're of endosomal origin. So they come from inside the cell instead of pinching off the plasma membrane, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, other than that, I think uh, you covered a, a exactly what uh, these things are. And uh, you can imagine that if they're coming the, off of a cell, they carry certain things that came from the cell of, the, of mm-hmm. their origin. And uh, people like to think that they might be involved in uh, communication between cells, right? Uh, they might be able to uh, transfer uh, messages from the cell that they came from. Okay. Do we, do we know, I, I, I mean, do any of you know when was the first instance of recorded about the existence of exosomes? I don't know. Uh, it probably depends on whether uh, uh, they were defined molecularly or, you know, uh, I, people knew that there were uh, cellular blips for as, as long as, you know, people had uh, uh, electron microscopy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know the uh, exact um, historical uh, origin of the uh, and when people started characterizing extracellular vesicles in more details and um, uh, being more okay. specific with the terminology. Because to me, it looks like a big deal in cell communication. Uh, These I, days, this uh, exosome and extracellular vesicle is very much the hot topic. In the field, yeah. yeah, I think uh, what uh, has kind of um, made it very difficult to study extracellular vesicles is their heterogeneity um, Mm -hmm. and also the fact that um, it's difficult to study a process when you can't genetically inhibit it, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't just very easily uh, uh, inhibit exosome production without screwing up other aspects of the cell. Right, so it makes it very difficult to attribute something to uh, exosome production. Um, our paper addresses it a little bit, but not not quite, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. we were uh, looking at the autophagy pathway, and uh, that's really what made it possible to study autophagy in detail. Uh, we have all these genetic tools available to uh, disrupt it and look at the consequence. And uh, uh, that's been a little more difficult when it comes to extracellular vesicles in general. Mm-hmm. 
So just to highlight that what Ken said before, that there are extracellular vesicles and it's an umbrella term. There's a lot of types of extracellular vesicles and one of those types is exosomes, right? Yes. Another okay. thing to di uh, differentiate exosomes from others is that it is biogenesis, its biogenesis happens from multivesicular bodies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, that's correct. All right. With that, we can move to our next term, autophagy. This is the process of consumption or destruction of the cell's own components by the cell. This happens during starvation when the body starts burning its own organelles for, for nutrition or happens in certain diseases, ideally. A less commonly known type of autophagy is secretory autophagy. In this process, the target proteins are initially destined to a lysosome, to the, to a lysosome for degradation but this pathway can change course and the cargo of whatever was going to end up in the lysosome can actually get secreted. Um, can, how, can you give us a very simplified way of how this works, how things are not going to the lysosome but are getting secreted? I guess the simple answer is people don't know yet. Uh, and okay. it might depend on the cargo that's being secreted. So, uh, I think uh, we can start backwards, which is uh, what people found is that many of the proteins that regulate uh, regular old autophagy, right, uh, turned out to be necessary for the secretion of certain things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have to work backwards from that to try to figure out why. Right, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, 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 it doesn't seem to uh, match the original function attributed to autophagy, which is to degrade stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine several scenarios uh, without going into the weeds too much. Um, uh, one would be that, okay, you have the same process where you gobble stuff up in the cytoplasm. And then when that giant vesicle called the autophagosome fuses with the plasma membrane, uh, the contents might get released that way, right? And uh, there's good reason to think that that's important for certain things that come out of the cell. Uh, the coolest example is, uh, uh, and I'm biased here, the egressive viruses. Uh, there's been really uh, phenomenal work that's come out showing that certain viruses get out of the cell that way. And when they do so, they acquire a fake membrane uh, that might cloak them from the immune system and help them transmit to another cell. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, that may very well be happening, but you could also imagine other uh, 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 situations where it's the same uh, uh, autophagy proteins, but they're not making this autophagosome, this giant vesicle, and that they're changing the biology of other types of vesicles, right? And that may be what's happening in the situation that uh, uh, we were examining in this paper. Okay, that was. A Are good there any uh, cues for the cell or any particular conditions under which they transfer from autophagy to secretory autophagy? Autophagy. Uh, so I think that might be the big question in the field, right? Um, and you can imagine uh, why this would be important to figure out if you're in the business of trying to manipulate the path pathway either for basic science purposes or for therapeutic purposes 
because you would uh, want to precisely affect the pathway that you care about uh, or you're trying to target and not affect something else, right? So I don't think it's very clear why the same proteins could be repurposed for uh, one outcome uh, in one situation and not another one. And uh, maybe one really interesting insight from our study is that we identified one upstream cue, uh, which is uh, an innate immune signal, right, that could specifically induce this uh, uh, secretion of um, uh, exosomes through the autophagy machinery. But we don't know yeah. why. Spoiler alert for everybody. <laughs> There's a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's go to the next part. The gene that Dr. Uh, that can already introduce to us the gene ATG16L1. It stands for autophagy-related 16-like-1 gene, which is, I don't know how people are naming these genes, but they're not convenient. <laughs> and it assists in targeting of cellular components to lysosomes for degradation as a part of the autophagy process. And in this paper, we'll find out that it actually also has some part to play in secretory autophagy. Okay. Now coming to the microbe MRSA, we already defined it, but it also releases a toxin called alpha toxin. This toxin causes pores in the cell membrane. Uh, and this yeah. will be a good thing to remember while we discuss the study. Yes, alpha toxin, very yes. important part of the study. Uh, my question is, why does MRSA do this? What benefit does it gain from secreting this toxin? So that's an excellent question, right? Because... Uh, bacteria, uh, their, their goal, if you want to personify bacteria for a second, isn't to make you sick, right? They want mm -hmm. to propagate. They want to make more copies of themselves and perhaps transmit to a new host. And it's not completely clear why MRSA wants to do this. Uh, we think that it might help um, uh, kill immune cells, that would be one way. But I'm not so sure with this particular toxin. It's got other toxins that are very good at that too. Another reason mm -hmm. has to do with uh, disseminating. Uh, so alpha toxin can kill cells that are uh, barriers for uh, in your body like skin and endothelial cells, right? Um, and that might allow it to get access to different parts of your body. So why might that be important? Uh, it might help it access nutrients. Uh, it might also help it uh, reach a target organ that is better for transmission. Uh, okay. It's not clear that that's exactly what it's doing, but that uh, uh, there's reason to, there, there's evidence supporting uh, those scenarios. I can't help but relate everything to viruses, how they would love for people to be alive while they're infecting and not die oh, yeah. for their own survival. Yeah, they're even more obligate than intracellular bacteria. True. Okay, the next term is metalloprotease. These are the proteases that depend on metals for catalyzing the proteolytic process. One of the metalloproteases that we will talk about in this study is ADAM10, A-D-A-M-10. ADAM10 can be found on the surface of the cells and typically this protein takes part in cell signaling by cleaving the receptors or ligands. But for today's discussion, we'll be talking about ADAM10 in reference to MRSA. 
So MRSA releases this alpha toxins, which is known to bind to ADAM10 and subsequently form pores in that cell. Hmm. So basically ADAM10 knockout cells will be resistant to the effects of alpha toxin and hence not susceptible to the pathogen. Okay. I, I find this very strange that things that possibly on just if you look at them have nothing to do with infections but pathogens figure out a way to exploit them like the like the ace2 angiotensin converting enzyme receptor who i wouldn't ever think that the virus would be using that as a receptor it's it's just so strange that pathogens find out these ways anyway uh before we dive into the article discussion uh my question to ken how did you get this idea? I think we've already talked about this, right? <laughs> but how did you get this exact yeah. idea of this paper? How did you like target exosomes and yeah. Yes, uh, so it started with a previous graduate student, Katie Moore. Uh, uh, she was a MD-PhD student in my lab. So Katie's project uh, was to see whether ATG16L1 uh, was important for defense against uh, MRSA, right? And uh, that project really started uh, from um, like a lot of conversations start in New York while I was waiting for an elevator. I was a new investigator at NYU and uh, uh, I bumped into my collaborator, Victor Torres, and you know, uh, the conversation was something along the lines of, hey, you work on autophagy, and hey, you work on staph, maybe autophagy is important in staph, right? <laughs> uh, it was nothing more complicated than that. And uh, we had an uh, animal that was um, mutant in uh, ATG16L1. Uh, and therefore had a defect in autophagy. And so what Katie did was just uh, uh, inoculate the mice uh, with staph with a MRSA strain um, and see what happens. And she saw that in both uh, models of bloodstream infection, uh, which is an intravenous injection, um, as well as pneumonia, um, uh, in both of those cases, these ATG16L1 mutant mice were highly susceptible to disease, right? Mm. And uh, when she graduated, uh, she figured out a lot of the pathogenesis mechanism. Uh, we knew that uh, this wasn't a direct role for ATG16L1 and autophagy and getting rid of the bacterium necessarily, but it had to do with susceptibility to the toxin, alpha toxin. That was the big insight. And we also knew that there was an increase in ADAM10 on the surface of cells uh, that you pull out of these mice, especially these barrier cells that I, I mentioned earlier, like epithelial cells and endothelial cells. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made sense to us, okay, uh, ATG16L1 is controlling um, the levels of ADAM10, right? Mm. Um, and if ADAM10 is important for alpha toxin, then okay, of, of course uh, the mice are going to uh, be affected when we infect them with staph, and staph is making this uh, uh, a dangerous toxin, right? Uh, mm. But we, what we didn't know was anything about the uh, cellular mechanism at the time. 
Uh, all we knew was that there was a connection between ATG16L1, ADAM10, and the toxin produced by Staph aureus. We are glad that talk in the elevator happened because <laughs> we are getting to know such new things now because of that. <laughs> this work demonstrates that uh, cells which are exposed to certain pathogens can survive only when those cells produce exosomes that can absorb bacterial toxins. Since these pathogens target the outer membrane of the cells, the exosome can deceive the pathogens as these exosomes also have similar double lipid membrane with similar membrane integrating proteins. This buys enough time for the cells to activate the immune response against the pathogen. This fascinating and stunning research that we are going to talk about is significant because number one, this provides a novel mechanism for boosting the immune response against infectious agent. And number two, it raises a possibility where the exosomes can be supplied to a body to bolster the body's natural defenses as they absorb bacterial toxins. Pathogens like Staphylococcus aureus and Carnibacterium diphtheriae secrete pore-forming toxins, which, as the name suggests, create holes in the cells by binding to the cell's outer membrane, and thus killing the cell as a consequence. But not all the cells which come in the vicinity of this pathogen are killed, which is surprising, but what we know is that, uh, is what is, sorry, what we know is the immediate response to these toxins by our cells to neutralize them before innate immunity can take over. Yeah. Well, that was a lot of spoilers, but yeah. <laughs> that let's... was an introduction. <laughs> full of spoiler introduction. But yeah, let's actually dive into the results. How How is the experiments conducted? Um, this work stems from the study by Dr. Cadwell's group before where they found that primary cells from mice expressing lower ATG16L1, which we were calling the hypomorphic mice, they had higher expression of ADAM10. As a result, these cells were highly susceptible to alpha-toxin-mediated lysis. The authors recreated this reduced ATG16L1 phenotype in vitro by SHRNA-mediated knockdown of ATG16L1 in an epithelial lung cell line. And they found the same results, increased ADAM10 expression and increased cell death with alpha toxin exposure. Um, and as Ken said before, this clarified one thing clearly that there is some relation between ATG16L1 being protective against alpha toxin mediated death. Now, the first thought that comes to, uh, to explain the mechanism is that ATG16L1 is an autophagy related protein. So, it's likely that this protein is somehow sentencing ADAM10 for lysis. If we are expecting that ADAM10 is targeted for degradation by ATG16L1, there are two major pathways that can accomplish that. The proteasomal degradation pathway and the lysosomal pathway. Uh, right, stopping right here, uh, can, can you give us a brief difference between the proteasomal degradation pathway and the lysosomal degradation pathway? Sure. The proteasome is like a trash can. 
um, and it's great at uh, chopping up proteins. Uh, the lysosome might be more like a dumpster, right? And uh, it could actually uh, degrade and get rid of, and also recycle uh, bigger things, right? But okay. there's a topology problem, which is that in order to put something in a lysosome, uh, it's got to get put into a vesicle first, right? So that's why autophagy mm -hmm. is important for lysosomal degradation. It gobbles stuff up in the cytoplasm and uh, sends it to the lysosome. So it's a good way of getting okay. rid of uh, bigger things like damaged mitochondria. Are proteasomes not present inside vesicles? They're just loosely hanging out in the cytosol? So we usually think of them, I, I don't know if I would say loosely, but we usually think of them in the cytosol, but they do exist uh, elsewhere too. Uh, so it's, okay. it's not just in the cytosol. Yeah, I like the trash can and the the big garbage dumpster, dumpster <laughs> analogy will help me remember. Yeah, back to the study. The authors found that inhibition of the proteasomal and lysosomal pathways did not affect ADAM10 levels, suggesting that ATG16L1 pathways play a role in ADAM10 reduction via lysosome and proteasomal independent mechanisms. This brings us to a big question. Where is the ADAM10 protein going if it's not getting degraded? Uh, can did Matthew get very upset when he found out that none of these is working or was he very hopeful that we are going to discover something new? So I don't know what was going inside Matt's head, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a good question because it was not immediately obvious to us what was happening, right? So uh, what's not in the paper, right, are all the experiments he did that indicated were wrong, right? So we mm -hmm. tested uh, it's either when, when, when a protein level uh, increases, right? It either means you're making more of that protein or you're breaking down the protein uh, 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 not as officially, right? And so right. he did all kinds of things to look at both of those possibilities and it wasn't correct, right? And so we were really left with only one other possibility because uh, uh, conservation of mass, right? So if it's not mm -hmm. being made more and it's not being degraded uh, less, right? Um, maybe there's another way in which the cell is getting rid of it, True. right? That's not degradation. It's not the proteasome yeah. or the lysosome. That's why we should have a journal of negative results. Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes when you do mistakes, that gives rise to new discoveries. And that's what happened for this research. Yeah, at least till this point. Yeah. Yep. And, the, you know, I guess... Uh, uh, the the solution, if you read the literature carefully, was there, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, that's what ended up uh, uh, making it so that we don't need to submit this to the Journal of Negative Results. Uh, we figured it out because uh, <laughs> yep. there's uh, precedence for it in the literature. Maybe not exactly what we're talking about, but there was this concept that uh, uh, there's this thing called secretory autophagy and it's important for other things like viruses getting out of the cell and you know being uh somebody with a virology background i uh i knew of the literature and i think when um i shared those papers with matt he got excited and he gets credit for taking what at the time was probably a crazy idea and actually uh supporting it with um uh, uh really uh, rigorous and um, in-depth experiments 
So, uh, yeah, right. Uh, I think uh, you're right that I'm sure Matt, at, there was a point where he was frustrated, but uh, that very quickly, you know, one experiment could change that frustration to uh, total excitement for discovering something new. True. It's so it's so useful to have interdisciplinary experience. It is very yeah. The next suspect in the study was the secretory molecules, like exosomes and microvesicles. So if you remember from our terminology section, ATG16L1 also played a role in plays a role in secretory autophagy. The next question the authors asked was, is the autophagy machinery increasing the secretion of vesicles with ADAM10 and thus reducing the ADAM10 expression on the cell surface? To understand this, they checked the exosomes from ATG16L1 knockdown and control cells, which had intact ATG16L1 expression. They found higher ADAM10 in the control cell with intact expression exosomes fraction compared to the ATG16L1 knockdown cell exosomes. Mm -hmm. Moreover, the results show that ATG16L knockdown cells produce significantly lesser exosomes than the control cells. So what's happening here? is that the ATG16L1 is increasing the exosome secretion as a result and the amount of ADAM10 getting packed in these exosomes is also more. Mm -hmm. Next, the author wanted to confirm these findings in vivo. If this gene ATG16L indeed uh, affects the exosomal secretion, then the mouse expressing lower ATG16L1 or to recap the ATG16L1 hypomorphic mice should have lower exosomes as well. The authors collected blood from the mice with uh, the mice wild type and the hypomorphic and then checked for exosome quantity which they determined was lower in the hypomorphic mice and that's what they hypothesized previously. So therefore, the ATG proteins regulate the quantity of exosome released and that's how they can increase or decrease the number of atom cell atom on the cell surface. Hmm. So it's just generally increasing exosomes, and nothing not to do with atom 10 specifically. the atom 10 per exosome. That's correct. So in that case, you probably would have found a lot other proteins getting reduced, like reduced expression once you in the in these hypomorphic mice, right? That's right. Um, so um, I don't know if uh, you'll be talking about it later, but uh, one experiment we did, um, actually in response to reviewers, um, was to do proteomics on the exosomes right mm -hmm. uh, to see what's there um, uh, it's a, it was actually a pretty tough experiment um, because to get enough uh, exosomes from the blood of mice right mm -hmm. you uh, really need a lot of blood right uh, if it's cell lines then it's uh, not so bad it's easy mm -hmm. uh, 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 so uh, we were able to do it and um, uh, thanks to a fantastic core facility and 
you do in fact see a lot of transmembrane proteins, which is why we were interested for this study, right? There's also mm -hmm. uh, soluble proteins as well. Um, and so uh, based on that knowledge, uh, we can infer that it's not just ADAM10, but all kinds of other things that are potentially regulated in this pathway. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, we could uh, use computational uh, strategies to infer where these exosomes come from in an intact uh, 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 organism, right? So in this case, mice. And a lot of these exosomes were coming from the liver. And that made uh, complete sense in this context because uh, the liver is a filtrating organ and we're sampling the blood. And uh, in order to get enough exosomes, we had to induce uh, uh, their uh, production by injecting stuff into the blood. So it actually made sense for this study. Uh, but that raises all kinds of questions about um, uh, where do they normally come from? Um, uh, can the cargo be different depending on the situation? Uh, what about local tissue-specific responses? Or is this more of a long-range thing? What's going on there? And we don't have the answers to those questions yet. Right. And I can imagine it will be hard to look at local tissue-specific responses unless you get the exosomes from the tissues. I don't know if that's even possible. If you have a great way of doing it, let me know because uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's I, you're you're correct. I think that's uh, that will be a little bit tough. Mm -hmm. That's one of the limitations. So yeah, yeah, you can only look at fluids, yeah. which can be ultra centrifuged. Mm. Yeah, but I, I I would quickly add that you know there's all kinds of really cool uh, cell culture models uh, that have advanced quite a bit uh, these last you know five. Uh, to 10 years, right? Um, my lab works with intestinal organoids, um, but there mm -hmm. are these types of 3D cultures for all kinds of different uh, uh, tissues, right? And so I think uh, uh, we, we don't have to restrict ourselves to the animal model to study some of these questions. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, you could also look at uh, uh, humans, right? Uh, we have... Mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of human specimens that uh, we could look at uh, for to ask various questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, getting back to our results. Just to recap that in the lower ATG16L1 expressing cells, the amount of ADAM10 was higher in their cell surface, which led to binding of alpha toxin and increased cell death. So if reducing ADAM10 on the surface membrane is a defensive strategy, the cell may accomplish so by producing more exosomes on pathogen expressor exposure as a defense mechanism. To test this, several model pathogens were used, Staph aureus, Coronae bacterium diphtheriae, Streptococcus pneumoniae, and Salmonella typhimurium. Cells infected with these pathogens all produced higher amounts of exosomes and it was found that bacterial DNA and CPG DNA from these pathogens, which are typically TLR ligands, induced exosome production only when ATG16L1 was also present. It seems that the TLR signals are the trigger for exosome production, but the ATG16L1 is the required machinery to pump up exosome production. That 
integrates very well with like i i i like how the danger signals and pams are getting integrated here so mm-hmm. it shows that our cells are not just going crazy and excreting exosomes all the time there's always a q q so here's the cool part about these exosomes these exosomes taken from wild type cells were able to protect ATG16 L1 knockdown cells against a toxin induced death and improve stable viability on the other hand when exosomes were depleted from the supernatant even heat killed staphylococcus aureus or cpg treated cells were susceptible to the toxin so it says that it's not just it, the tlr ligands are not the main deal it's the exosomes and the contents of the exosomes that are protecting yes. these cells these exosomes seem to be inhibiting the effect of toxin by aggregating the toxin on the exosome surface additionally the exosomes also protected cells from other toxins like leukad leukad is the one of the toxins that staph aureus secretes and the diphtheria toxin so i think uh the, it's pronounced mm-hmm. luke ed um oh, and the reason is that e and d are subunits so they're they're oh. coded by two different um uh genes Okay. So the author just showed that transferring exosomes can confer protection to toxins in vitro. Now, for me, I feel like this is a huge deal. Did you guys party in the bar that night? Yes, we did. Um, <laughs> no, that was that that was you know uh, a, a great day in the lab, right? Uh, because um, it was it was uh, initially just kind of a crazy idea. right um but uh we had hope it would uh be true because the uh uh one of the ways we were measuring exosomes and showing that atom tan was there was through flow cytometry and that's a technique where you incubate stuff usually cells but in this case uh extracellular vesicles right you you incubate cells or extracellular vesicles with antibodies that are fluorescently labeled. And so mm. the fact that our antibody against Adam 10 labeled these exosomes meant that Adam 10 was facing the right direction. And so mm-hmm. uh uh that allowed that led to this hypothesis that maybe it will bind, you know, the toxins. Yeah, that's also an important ar- argument, right? The, f- the right direction, what if it's inside out? Right. All those so many technical details that you we have to look at. Mm-hmm. Right? Hmm. Next, it would be useful to know the in vivo consequence of these exosomes that were secreted in response to the TLR ligands activation by CPG DNA and are required for ATG 16L1 for biogenesis. To answer this, the authors infected wild-type mice with heat-killed Staphylococcus aureus. They collected the exosomes from the blood of these mice and injected the blood, the exosomes into a recipient mice who then received a high dose of S aureus. This transferred exosomes extended the life of the recipient mice, which was a great finding. Yeah. Yes, and it can. <laughs> So, uh however when the exosome donor mice had lower ATG16L1 expression the recipients did not extend the life as well possibly due to the lower exosome count uh 
but finally this may be because the lower ATG 16L1 expression means that there was a lower exosome count and that's why there wasn't as good survival mm-hmm. or resistance from the toxins yeah this is the pathogen. perfect end to the study I like the study started with monocular mechanism and ended with a vaccine type uh, therapeutic therapeutic yeah, right? conclusion yeah oh so after all this discussion let's look at what this study would lead us to first revisiting our dog chew toy analogy that i'm very proud of coming with (laughs) (laughs) so the dog chew toy that we said these cells are secreting the exosomes which are like a chew toy for these notorious pathogens that would (laughs) rather bind their toxins to the exosomes instead of actually hurting the cells which is in my opinion a top-notch survival strategy I, I don't know how, how much exosomes have. Do you know if exosomes have a lot of energetic burden on the cell? Like the cell get stressed when it's producing a lot of exosomes? I know that uh, whenever there is a stress response, they produce more exosome than required. But also if you mutate the cells, there can be lesser exosomes. Hmm. So Yeah, assuming it's not very energetically expensive, it's a great defense strategy. I don't know if... Right, I'm all... All immune types of immune defense have an energy cost, right? Um, mm-hmm. I can't give you any kind of numbers, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, that would be quite difficult to do with uh, this, but uh, it kind of makes sense, right? You have uh, when you have danger, dangerous things that target the surface of a cell. To say, okay, I'm gonna shed some things from the surface. Take that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that sense. At least, you know, in, in my head, it, it, it makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. Another, I like your dog chew toy analogy. Another one that I, I like to think about is uh, uh, the fighter jets that release those flares, right? So mm-hmm. you have heat-seeking missiles that try to blow up a fighter jet out of the sky, right? But if you, mm-hmm. sh- yeah. if you drop a flare that's hot, the missile will hit that instead of the fighter jet. So... Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that that's another uh, uh, one in my head that, that helps me analogy. conceptualize what might be happening here. Mm. Yeah, the, the I want to mention right here the good part about the paper, apart from the science, is how easy it is to convey. In the last three days, I have told at least three of my friends about the study who have nothing to do it's with really biology. Easy for the lay audience to understand this research so that's great yeah at least the the whole that's what idea our is... main aim is right to uh, make our science available to the yeah. lay public there's also uh, uh for anyone interested we have a uh, cartoon video uh that explains the study for a lay audience on our website um uh it's worth checking out uh i and uh, 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 Matt, uh, the graduate student, came up with the script. So uh, it's, a, it's a neat way to, you know, communicate uh, these concepts um, uh, to uh, people who are more visually oriented. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it's generally a very easy to grasp concept. I love this. Next, coming to this concept called intrinsic immunity. So we've heard of innate immunity. Cell, there are specific cells that take care of this. There are barriers. There is adaptive immunity, which is more specialized, takes time. 
but there is this a unique kind of immunity called intrinsic immunity where each cell itself has its own defense mechanisms these include the uh, microRNAs all the kinds all kinds of um, intracellular defenses and I would think of this exosome secretion as a part of cells own defense without the help of any immune cell at all so this is pretty cool that we found a new way a, a, a new kind of intrinsic immunity mechanism but other than this uh, mostly the exosomes are known usually for the communication between the cells similarly the bacterial extracellular vesicles are known to communicate with other bacterias of the same or surrounding species or with the host cell itself yeah. so their main purpose is to communicate that's what we knew mm -hmm. but this is a very new function given to the exosomes that they can be acting as a decoy as defense systems and yeah. uh, helping the immune system to build up while it is de like mm -hmm. uh, what do you call it uh, distracting the well, pathogens yeah. yep yeah and and a lot of these exosomes probably also have cytokines that can be picked up by uh, neighboring immune cells and there could be or of activation i'm assuming There's even so many questions yeah, still to answer right the tlr ligands could be passed down to other cells yes and it looks like there's some unpublished uh data in the field that uh exosomes do exactly that um mm -hmm. uh which transfer uh you know various soluble immune mediators uh around mm -hmm. in the cancer field uh it's a little more developed uh uh, there's uh, evidence that these exosomes um, can uh, 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 make a an environment more likely to um, be receptive of uh, metastatic tumors that uh, will come and invade that tissue. Right. So uh, uh, I think I think you're correct, and um, the emphasis has and will probably continue to be on uh, communication between cells. Uh, but our, you know, kind of new angle here is that uh, uh, the exosomes themselves uh, might play a more direct role in defense, right? And uh, yeah. we're, we're kind of excited to see if this holds true in other uh, types of uh, infectious disease and immune disorder situations. Yeah. From the communication aspect, I want to just highlight one study that I read yesterday. It was It was an old study, but it's, it was quite interesting that um, exosomes can even traffic inflammasomes to other cells. And these inflammasomes are giant macromolecular complexes. They're hard to build up and not every cell may have the even machinery to build it up. So if you just receive it from a neighboring cell, that makes your life so much easier as a cell. Sure. Right. And this was a study about central nervous system. All the glial cells were doing that. So yeah, there's so many things that helping out the neighbors. At this point, I feel like even if a cell doesn't have the machinery, it's no longer a limiting factor. It can just get the machinery from its neighboring cells. And this brings us to the last topic for the discussion. That is therapeutics. And Ken, I would like you to take this one. How do you feel? How how do you think of this study as? propagating the uh, science about exosome therapeutics. Are we going to see those in the near future? I think there's a, so there's already been efforts by people to uh, uh, use nanoparticles, right, as uh, decoys of some sort. 
um, it's not too different from uh, some studies uh, we see uh, now where they're talking about um, coating particles with uh, ACE2 or an antibody against the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, right? That kind of stuff. So uh, I think to a certain extent, those types of strategies are already being explored in various iterations. Um, one problem is that uh, for it to be a useful therapeutic, uh, you have to be able to manufacture them in uh, a, a way that you get both consistency and be able to scale up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that may or may not be uh, feasible, uh, uh, but uh, worth considering. To me, what's more exciting is that uh, this may be a way uh, that you naturally uh, uh, promote defense, right? So mm -hmm. are some people less uh, capable of making exosomes? Um, and that's what makes them susceptible. And can we fix that? Uh, or can we get our body to make more of the exosomes? So instead of transferring exosomes, um, like we did with the animal model, can we uh, get people, uh, which is also something we, we got to do with the cells and uh, in vitro and with the mice, can we get your body to make more of them, right? Can we target the mm -hmm. upstream part so that you don't need mm -hmm. to inject exosomes into somebody? So that's something uh, I think worth considering when we're talking about therapeutics. Yeah. So just like we have the passive transfer of antibodies for people, like the plasma convalescent plasma transfer mm -hmm. right for some people for certain diseases there might be exosome transfers in the future i'm guessing that'll be expensive <laughs> i think there already are some uh, development going on for vaccines which has bacterial evs in them which are extracellular vesicles yes extracellular vesicles. Okay. Yeah. right and this unrelated to this research but this also reminds me a similar study which was done in bacteria, so Vibrio cholerae, it was done by Reis Robles in Journal of Bacteriology, and it said that the outer membrane vesicles which were released from the bacteria was uh, showing was a kind of decoy to the bacteriophages. Yes. So this study is very similar, and it's interesting how the decoy function is coming up to be another important thing which exosomes do. Yeah, it's like a recurring theme at different levels of life. That's pretty cool. Thank you for telling me that. Now I can tell that to other my friends and have fewer friends after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, I think we have covered this paper. It was an uh, amazing read. Assuming somebody dozed off in the first 15 minutes that we were discussing, how can we summarize the whole study? Uh, Ken, would you like to take this one? Sure. Uh, so what we uh, basically found was that uh, uh, there are innate immune countermeasures to all kinds of things out there that bacterial pathogens throw at us, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't know that if there was something, uh, a great way to deal with uh, attack to the plasma membrane. Right? and especially these pore forming toxins. And so what we found was that uh, cells in our body, uh, when they sense uh, the presence of bacteria, 
Uh, they make extracellular vesicles called exosomes, which can bind toxins and neutralize them. And uh, that turns out to be a very interesting and uh, new way that uh, cells can protect themselves from membrane attack. Right. That was a very clean summary. It was. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Ken, for joining us on the show. Tanud, is it there was anything? very informative. Oh, yeah. Thank you for helping us out at every point. Some articles that I that I, I like reading or I get, I think the, the study is very clean and there's a very nice outcome. I get very excited about these <laughs> studies. This is one of those. <laughs> but yeah, Tanud, do you want to, or uh, Ken, do you want to add anything else? we wrap up nope uh uh you two did a great job of covering the paper thanks thank you thank for joining you. us and everybody who's listening to us um we we have a, a instagram page and a facebook page where we sometimes post uh useful information other times it's just memes about which are useful too <laughs> which are also useful because these are educational memes yes and with that we'll be ending this episode thank you all thanks for listening everyone. see you Thank you.